Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. During lockdown, for the first time in my life, I watched the film The Karate Kid, which, as someone born in the 80s, that's quite a shameful admission because it's a cult film of my generation. But for whatever reason, I hadn't seen it before lockdown, and I thought, well, I'm stuck at home, I've got nothing else to do, fine, I'll see what all the hype is about. I don't know if you've seen The Karate Kid. It's about uh, this kid who moves to California, it's called Danny LaRusso, and in his new home, he's getting a hard time. There are a bunch of bullies there, and these bullies uh, randomly uh, are into karate, but use it aggressively, uh, and they keep beating him up, they trash his bike, they do all sorts of nasty stuff to him. He's pretty miserable in his new home, and he's living in this block of flats, and there's a handyman at the block of flats called Mr. Miyagi, who it turns out is a karate expert, and eventually Danny persuades Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate. And Mr. Miyagi says to him, okay, here's what we're going to do. If you want to learn karate, I want you to turn up at my house tomorrow, six o'clock in the morning, get to my house and I'll teach you karate. So uh, he does, he turns up there, he's all excited. I think he's expecting to learn some kicks and chops and all the moves you'd expect if you were learning karate. And uh, Mr. Miyagi makes a deal with him that he, he's just got to obey unquestioningly whatever the instructions are. And uh, eventually Danny says, yeah, okay, I'll do whatever you say. I won't ask any questions. And Mr. Miyagi says to him, great, well, what I want you to do then is wax my car. And I don't just have one car, I have a whole yard full of cars. You wax them. And uh, there's a special technique I want you to use. One hand, wax on. One hand, wax off. And go car after car after car. Work all day on these cars, and then, uh, then I'll tell you what to do next. And so he does, he spends all day waxing Mr. Miyagi's cars. It gets to nighttime, so he goes home and he says, all right, come back tomorrow then, and uh, th- then we'll get into it. Then I'll tell you what you need to know. So uh, Danny comes back the next day, and he thinks maybe that was a test, just see if I was willing to go along with a random instruction. Fine, today's the day to learn my moves. Well, uh, and the next day, uh, the instruction is I want you to sand the floor, big circular motion, sand the floor, sand the floor. And he spends all day sanding Mr. Miyagi's floor. And then the next day, similar thing, but this time uh, is paint the fence, up, down, up, down, paint the fence all day, both sides of the fence. The next day, similar story, paint the house side to side, side to side. By the end of it, Danny's getting absolutely furious because he's in this new place, he's not happy, he's left all his friends behind, he's getting picked on at school and and now this old guy has basically turned him into a domestic slave on the pretense of teaching him karate. So uh, he confronts him, he says, look, this isn't what I signed up for, this isn't what I wanted. And then uh, Mr. Miyagi shows him that all of the techniques that he's learned, the wax on, wax off, are the karate movements that he needs, the circle, circle, sand the floor. They up down all of it, and uh, he starts doing these karate chops, and Danny's got the instincts, he's got the reflexes to fight him off. And uh, as the film ends, then he enters a karate tournament, he, he takes on one of the bullies in the final of it, obviously. He beats him, happy ending, blah, blah, blah. If you've not seen it by now, uh, I, I don't know what you're doing, because I'm not, uh, it's not a spoiler when it's made in the 80s, is it, if I tell you how it ends. Uh, so, so he ends up uh, with this thing 
resolve. But the bit of it that's relevant for today, the, the reason I highlight this film is the process that Danny went through. All of these seemingly little things, these seemingly unrelated things, were the things that ended up being vital in the big objective. And I want to point to you that life is a little bit like that. There'll be many things that each of us do day in, day out, that when we look at them in isolation, we think, what is the point in this? What's that all about? Why is this thing important? Why does my course matter? Why does just being faithful with my friends matter? Why does staying up late when my mate's having a hard time and just wants to get it off their chest to someone? Why does sacrificing your sleep for that really matter? Why does getting up early to pray and read your Bible day after day after day matter? These little things, they don't seem like a big deal. But like Danny, wax on, wax off, sand the floor. These little things are teaching us, they're growing us, they're equipping us and they're preparing us for big things that will come later. Now, we've been doing uh, a series that we started last week here at CCM uh, called The Ten Rules for Life from the Story of David. Now, David's a character in the Old Testament. He's one of my absolute favourite characters. And we read his story and we picked out a few little principles and ideas and things that we've noticed in the story that we reckon if we can get our head around these things and start putting them into practice in our lives, then our lives will be changed for the better. And we met David last week. Now, what had happened is, uh, this was ancient Israel, uh, and they had a king who basically had said, God, I don't want any help from you. I don't want to do things your way. I'm going to ignore everything that you're saying to me. And so God said, okay, well, let's get a new king. Let's get someone who will listen, who does want help, and who will be the king my way. Now, the old guy's still around, but God's not helping him anymore. That was King Saul. Uh, And and then last week, we saw that God sent Samuel, his, his guy, to the house of a man called Jesse, and said, one of Jesse's sons will be the king. And the one who got picked wasn't the one everyone would expect. It wasn't the biggest, strongest best leader. It was the little guy. It was the the youngest son, the one who was still out in the fields with the sheep, and that was David. So we met David for the first time last week. We're going to pick up a bit more of his story today. Now, where we pick up the story today, there is a war between the ancient Israelites and the ancient Philistines. And and we might think, war, that's big, that's scary, that's a a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It wasn't quite like that for them. They had wars every year. We've kind of replaced it with stuff like the Olympics as ways of uh, kind of cheering on our country. But for them, every year, there was a time of year, they'd just go to war. They'd go and fight the neighboring countries. And uh, they're doing that again at this point in time. And what I'm going to do, I'm just going to pick up uh, the story in the Bible from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. So if you've brought your Bible and you'd like to turn there, please do so. But I'm also putting everything on the screen that you need to see. If you've not got a Bible, no problem at all. And I'm just going to pick out a few little bits from the opening uh, couple of paragraphs. So I won't read it in its entirety, but just enough to set the context of what's happening. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were encamped at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. 
If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Nice, simple challenge, isn't it? I remember when I was a kid, we had this playground game that we played. You'd separate everyone into two teams. And then each team would nominate one person to step forward. They grabbed each other's hand. It was basically like a tug of war. Who could pull the other person over the line? You get them to be on your team. This is like an ancient, much more violent version of that game. Both teams get to pick one person. It's not just pulling each other over a line. It's mano a mano, fight to the death. And whoever wins gets everyone from the opposing army on their team to be their slaves, to run around after them, to do whatever they ask them to do. So the stakes are pretty high. Picture it, two armies, two mountains. One guy walks down into the valley and he's asking for a challenger. Now, that might seem kind of an easy enough picture. You might think, okay, well, whoever's the toughest guy, whoever's the biggest guy, whoever's the best at fighting from Team Israel, go on, let's do this. Let's make it a WrestleMania main event for the ages and see who wins. Let's just pause and think about the guy who's stepped forward. Think about Goliath, because I don't think the way I read that, the, the story really gave us the full picture of him, because it says his height was six cubits, and a span. Now, um, I don't measure in cubits and spans. I don't know if you do. I, it, it's not part of our normal way of measuring. Like, even if you're here from the countryside, you've probably moved beyond cubits and spans into feet, into meters, into different types of measurements. So, here's how it translates. He was nine and a half feet tall. He was three meters tall, if you prefer to think of it that way. Now, I've sometimes met people who are two metres tall, and I have to look up to talk to them. Two metres is kind of normal, but pretty big. They're like the biggest people we tend to meet day by day. The biggest person in the world at the moment, Sultan Kosen, is two and a half metres tall. This guy's another half metre on top of that. So we're talking an absolutely humongous guy stepping forward. Now, he was wearing a bronze helmet. He was wearing leg armor, and it's, he, he wore this coat, right? And his coat weighed 55 kilograms. Now, 55 kilograms, that's the weight of some people. So it's like his armor is basically a person in weight, but he's strong. He can carry that off. But imagine walking to battle with a whole person on your back as your armor. That's just what you need to get through to have a chance of hurting him. He has a bronze javelin. Now, I bet he could throw that javelin pretty hard. I bet if he stabbed you with that javelin, you stayed stabbed. That's the kind of vibe we've got going on. Also, he had a big spear, and it says it was so big that the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Any weavers? No? Um, I, I looked it up. Basically, the thickness we're talking is the fat end of a baseball bat. So his spear is like fat end of baseball bat thickness the whole way through. Six and a half kilo uh, head on it that, that was sharp that he could stab you with as well. He also had another bloke stood in front of him holding his shield for him. I think that's cheating when you challenge someone one-on-one -on -one, and then you get another person to hold your shield. But um, it seems like no one questioned it. Would, well, I wouldn't question it either if it was Goliath. I mean, uh, I wouldn't dare. So then you've got the Israelite army, and it's no surprise, really, is it, that no one wants to take up 
the challenge. Now, there's probably a few obvious candidates in the army who you'd think, these people really ought to do it. And number one would be King Saul, the guy uh, who kept not doing what God wanted. Because when we were introduced to him, we were told he was the biggest guy in Israel. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He, he was strong. He gave off the vibes of authority, of command, of ability to fight. If you're looking for a warrior, he should be the one, and he should prove why he was the king. But he didn't have the guts to do it. We also, last week, were introduced to a couple of David's brothers who seriously had kind of big warrior vibes about them. Eliab, Abinadab, you looked at them and you were impressed and you thought, wow, you can take anyone on. You should be king. When the moment of challenge came, none of them had what it took. I think of it as like a game of top trumps, right? Saul and Eliab and Abinadab, their, their highest number on their top trumps card was strength, high fighting ability. These were the things they were good at. But all of a sudden, the guy facing them has just got higher numbers in all of those regards. And when all you've got to bring to the table is your own strength, your own size, and your own impressiveness, what do you do when someone bigger, stronger, and more impressive is stood before you? You've got nothing left to offer. So we've got that awkward situation then where he's there and there's just tumbleweed. Nobody is answering the challenge. Do you ever do this, right? When you've got like a, a really big thing in front of you that you don't want to do, you just procrastinate, you find other things to do, you, you go to inbox zero on your email and you tidy your room and uh, you, you do all the stuff to avoid the thing you really want to deal with. Well, that's what the Israelites basically are doing. They're not dealing with the thing that needs dealing with, which is Goliath and this challenge. Well, then you've got David. David turns up there, and he's not even meant to be there. This is like a battle zone. He's a 15-year-old shepherd boy. He's not meant to be there. The only reason that he even turns up in the first place is his dad said to him, look, uh, you know your brothers who are on the front line? They're probably getting a bit hungry because they've been waiting for so long for someone to answer this challenge. Would you go and take them a packed lunch? I've made them a few sandwiches. David, be a good lad and run and take these to your brothers and then come home. Don't get in any trouble while you're there, you know. Um, but David turns up. He looks down in the valley. He sees Goliath. He sees nobody stepping forward to the challenge. And he thinks, this is weird. Why is no one doing this? It bothers him. He asks a few questions about it, and he gets his answers, and then I'm going to pick up the story again from verse 32 onwards, and let's see what happens next. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you, you're but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's weird, isn't it? Grabbing a lion by his beard and punching him. But that's what he did. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he's defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, 
who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Anyone else think he sounds pretty confident? You know, he's about to go into battle with a three-meter-tall guy, and he's coming at it with a Tyson Fury level of swag. He really believes he's going to win this battle. But you know what? It's not just bluster. He really knows deep down that the battle will be his. I want to give you three reasons he was confident. Number one was his preparation. He was prepared because David had already been through challenges. He talked about when he was out with the sheep, when a lion would come, when a bear would come, when they'd grab one of the sheep and he'd have to chase them down and get that sheep back. He's been through things already and he's seen through what he's been through that firstly he has some skills and secondly that God is with him and God will help him and he knows how to fight in God's strength. God's given you things to do. He's given you things to do this week. And there'll be hundreds of things in your life this week. Little things. Things that seem to you like no big deal. But they're the things that just make up the normality of your life. The day-by-day things that you work through one after the other after the other every day. And this is what I want you to understand today. As you do those little things that God's given you, and as you do them well, and as you do them with all your heart, that God will use those things to prepare you for what he's got for you in the future. God uses these little things of life. So I'd urge you, I would encourage you, do the small stuff well. You know, David, he could have just let the lion take one of the sheep. I mean, there, there were loads of sheep. They all looked the same. No one would know if it was gone. But in those little things, he did it well. Do the little things well in life. And let God use those things to prepare you for the big things. Alex and Brett Harris wrote a book called Do Hard Things. And in it, they gave us five reasons why often the small stuff, doing it well, is difficult. First one is this, right? The little things don't usually go away after you've done them. So let's think of some little things. The washing up, right? You do the washing up. Tomorrow, there's more washing up. It's it's not gone away. Your friend who's got a problem, who wants some of your time to talk it through, I know what they're like. You know, tomorrow they'll have another problem, and next week they'll have another problem. It's not just one time only, and then it's gone. You know, your coursework, you do it, they'll set you more. These things don't go away. They're just kind of regular, rhythmic things. These things don't seem very important. I mean, making the time to um, regularly just phone home, touch in with your siblings, check they're okay. That doesn't seem important in the way setting up a charity to eliminate poverty seems important. These little things, they seem inconsequential, so it's easy to rationalise skipping on them. They don't seem to make any difference. I mean, when you reason it through, if you get up tomorrow morning and read your Bible versus if you don't, will that make a big difference to your life five years from now? They don't seem that big in the difference they may. These things don't seem glamorous. It's not like you've got people cheering you on saying, yes, go for it. Often you're on your own. Often you're the only one who knows it's routine. It's mundane. No one is watching these things. And all these things would be true for David in the little things that he had to do. They're also true for us in the little things that we have to do. But the little things prepare you for the bigger things to come. 
Like the Karate Kid, the little things, the, the wax on, wax off, the sand, the floor, the paint, the fence, the paint, the house, was preparing him to go into battle. The little things of life will prepare you. I don't know if any of you know of Rick Warren. He was a big deal back in the 90s, a Christian pastor, wrote one of the best-selling Christian books of that time called The Purpose Driven Life. Millions of copies sold, and millions of people would say his book really helped people put their life in order before God. And uh, one of the things that not loads of people knew about Rick Warren before he wrote this book is how good he was with his money and being faithful in stewarding what he had. So when he got married, he and his wife said, we're, we're going to do a thing called tithing where we give 10% of our money to the church and other Christian causes. And then they said, we want to be more generous than that. And they didn't have loads. They were pretty impoverished at the time. But they said, each year, we're going to try and increase what we give. And because they didn't have a lot, like in the early years, it was like, this is a stretch, but we think we can go from 10% to 11%. So let's do 11% this year. And the next year, they hit 12%. And then uh, 15% and 20% and 25%. And they were giving away more and more of their money. And then he writes this book, and it sells millions of copies, and now kind of loads of money comes in. Now what they do is reverse tithe, and they give away 90% of the money, and they live off 10. But one day someone interviewed Rick Warren, and they said, out of all the people in the world, out of all the authors, out of all the teachers, out of all the people who God could have used to write this book that influenced so many people, why do you think God chose you for the job? And Rick said, that's an easy one. God chose me. Because he knew he could trust me with the money. He knew it wouldn't corrupt me. It wouldn't turn my heart away from him. Why? Because in the little things, when he didn't have a lot, when no one else was watching, he developed the skills of how to use his money well for God. Do the little things well. David developed his skill and character in the small things. So he was ready when God had the big thing for him. Right, second reason David was confident, and that's his self-knowledge. Let me uh, read from verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armour. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armour, and he tried in vain to go, for he not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, Saul's armour was good armour. It was probably the best armour that Israel could afford. And it was the armour that really should have been going into battle against Goliath. But Saul was the guy who should be wearing it. He's the guy who it was designed for. It was built for his body. I mean, Saul was probably seven foot tall. This armor was designed for him. He was trained to use it. If the armor was so good, why didn't Saul go himself? If the armor could have won the battle, why wouldn't Saul wear it? He obviously didn't have confidence. But on David, it was absolutely ludicrous. Because you've got this 15-year-old kid wearing the armour that belonged to a seven-foot warrior, and it's swamping him. Just imagine, like, the helmet kind of drooping over him, the, the kind of chest plate going down to his knees, this little kid going out to battle in, like, the big man's armour. It's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? But that's what they thought should happen. David knew that this armour wasn't the right thing to wear. Timothy Yu is a pastor in Singapore, and he says that Saul's armour represents three things. I think these are all really important. 
Number one, it represents good intention that may run contrary to God's intent. You know, sometimes we have good ideas. We have things that we say, I think this would be good. And we never quite take the time to ask God, what do you think? Is this what you want, God? We just go ahead on our own steam. That's asking for trouble. Secondly, he says, it represents a locked-in perspective. Like, you've got this view, there's only one way you can do this. The only way you go into combat is wearing the armour, is with the sword. Sometimes we lock ourselves in and block things that God might want to do because we're so rigid in our thinking that this has to be the way it's done because that's the way it always has been done. I believe God wants to raise up some creativity to have some new approaches today's solutions to the problems that are before us, not just a a, a kind of repeat of what's happened in the past. And thirdly, it represents a burden he was not meant to carry. How many of us have burdens on our shoulders because of the way other people want our lives to be, because of the way we think other people would have us approach things? And we're not meant to carry those weights and those burdens. We're meant to listen to what God's done in our lives, to what he said, and step out in a way that reflects truly who we are and who God has made us to be. David's self-awareness, is so important because he knew that in those years out with the sheep, he learned a few things. He wasn't a warrior for hand-to-hand combat. He couldn't fight like uh, with fists and swords, but he was nimble. He was sneaky. He could duck and weave. He was good at throwing stones. So why not take the things that God's taught him how to do and take those things into battle? Andy Asakwe said, a lesson to learn from this is that everyone has their areas of grace that they must develop and maximise. When difficult and trying times come, those are not the best times for you to start trying to be like someone else or to start fighting battles the way others had done in the past. Rely on the Lord and the weapons he has trained you to use. Use the knowledge, skills and wisdom that God has endowed you with. I think that's a really important lesson. You know, there are things in you that God has shaped in you a particular way that are unique and that you have to offer. Don't try to be somebody else, but grow in the things that God has given to you. Well, thirdly, the third reason David was so confident is his faith. He had big faith in a big God. Pick this up in verse 41. Uh, The first day moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Ultimately, David was confident 
Not because he was so good, not because he had skills, but because God was with him. He was confident in God, not in himself. Because David knew two things. Firstly, David knew that God had made a promise. This battle was taking place on a plot of land, we read it in verse 1, that God had promised to David and his people. So Goliath's encroaching on something. God's already said, this is yours. David believed God's promise. And secondly, David knew that God had come through for him before. He'd, he'd been round this cycle again and again and again of trusting in God and seeing God come through. I love to pray in the evenings. It's my favourite time to pray. There's a whole bunch of things I do in an evening when I'm praying. But one of the things that I do is I look back and I look at the things. What was I praying about yesterday? I think, what was I praying for yesterday evening? What was I praying for this time last week? What was I praying for this time last year? And I think about those things and it just encourages me so much as I think about, I was praying for this and God's done it. I was praying about this situation that I was so worried about. And God came through and God brought deliverance and God resolved this thing that I needed. I know some people love to write down their prayers and look back and read and tick them off. I do it kind of mentally in my mind, but however you do it, look back at all the things God has done. All the prayers you've prayed that you've seen answered. All the times you've known God with you and God come through for you. You know, you know it's such an encouraging thing. We were singing a song just a few minutes ago, weren't we? Why would I be surprised when you deliver every time? And when you see it happen again and again and again, that God delivers, it's what he does over and over again. You get faith, don't you? That Okay, well, why should this time be different. If I think about the things I was praying for yesterday and last week and last year, and it's tick, 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 God answered that, God answered that, God answered that, and then I start praying for the things that I need today, well, why would this one be different to those ones? Is this the one where God's suddenly going to fail? Is this the one where God's going to suddenly give up and not come through? Absolutely not. He's got a track record of coming through, and David knew it, so he had faith. Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, he, he said this, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. That's a faith. I think David's perception of the situation was a little bit like a a kind of comic strip in the Beano. I've got an eight-year-old son. He loves reading the Beano. And one of the classic things that happens is you've got this kid who looks small. And there's a school bully who, the way they draw it, they look so big and they take up the entire square of the comic strip. But then suddenly the, the kid's big brother or the kid's dad or something turns up. And this bully that looks so big now looks small and is dwarfed by this much bigger person who's come to the rescue. And it's like David sees himself, what, 5'8", let's say, and then you've got Goliath 9'10", and then the God of the universe dwarfing everything. He knows who's biggest, and it isn't Goliath. And he knows that God is not a neutral. Do you ever think that God's neutral in the situations of your life? Like he's watching, thinking... Yeah, shall I get involved? Shall I not get involved? How do I want this to play out? Hmm. Jen Thorne says, God is with you and for you. He watches over you and dwells in you. You may not be able to see God with your eyes, but you can see his power 
in and through your life. God's not neutral. He's with you. He's for you. He's on your side in the things that you're facing, the battles that you have. The God of the universe is with you. That's our faith. So the situation, how does it resolve? This should be no surprise with what we've built up to. I mean, if you're expecting Goliath to win now, you probably haven't been paying attention. Um, Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. He was wearing all this armour that we talked about and there was one tiny little chink in it and that's where his helmet met his face. There, a tiny little gap. David threw the stone and there is no way that stone should have been able to find that gap in the armour. That was a one in a million shot to get that gap so precisely and God came through and guided that stone, thud, into Goliath's head, third on the ground, and then David took the giant's own sword and cut off his head. God came through. That's how it played out. And as I was thinking about this story, I was just thinking about what I wanted to bring today. I just saw so clearly, isn't David just such a picture of Jesus here? I mean, think about uh, how David had been for, for such a long time preparing, and then came the moment of battle when no one else could step up, no one else could take down this enemy, and he stepped up and did it. Jesus came to earth. He spent 33 years faithfully obeying his heavenly Father in the little things, in the details of life, doing what needed doing, working an ordinary job for most of those years, going around, being compassionate to the needy, healing the sick, preaching the gospel. But when that moment came to take down sin, death, the devil, these enemies that nobody else could step up to, he did it. And he had confidence, not uh, in himself, but in his father to guide him through. And in that garden of Gethsemane, the night before he went to the cross, he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. I'm doing this your way, Father. And he did. He had trust in God. And God came through. It's like that stone that hit Goliath. Well, a different stone three days after Jesus died on the cross, was moved, was rolled away by the Father's hand. And Jesus emerged victorious like David emerged victorious. And think about all those people in that camp who couldn't take on the battle themselves, who got to share in that victory. And think about all us who get to share in this victory that Jesus has won. We're part of this army that can jump up and down and shout and celebrate victory won. David is a picture of Jesus. I see it also as a challenge for us. I think there's something in this story of David that, uh, that just challenges our lives. There'll be some days, not many, but there'll be some days in your life that you just know, this is a Goliath day. This is the big one. This is a moment that so much of my life has been building up to. And there'll be a call on you to be full of faith and expectant for what God will do that day. And then there'll be hundreds of days that are not Goliath days. There'll be out with the sheep days. There'll be lion days. There'll be bear days. There'll be normal days, ordinary days, facing the challenges of day to day life. Faithfully doing the things. Wax on, wax off, sand the floor. These ordinary things of life that prepare you, that build your character, and that build your faith. Johnny Wilkinson, a rugby player, he scored the winning kick in a World Cup final. 
But I heard him interviewed it, and he talked about all these other days in the build-up to that, when it was exactly the same technique, exactly the same motion, in training, kick after kick after kick. When his teammates had gone home, he was still out in the field, faithfully kicking, 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 developing his technique, being ready for when the moment came. Be faithful in the small, unglamorous things of life, and it will stand you in good stead for whatever God has for you. The little things prepare you for the big things. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then hopefully the musicians can jump up while I'm doing so and lead us in worship. Lord, we thank you so much that you are the God of victory. That you didn't leave David to do this on his own, by his own strength. He could never have done it by his own strength. He was just a kid. But you were with him, and you came through. God, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you're not neutral, but thank you that you're for us. Thank you that all the might of heaven is at your command. And you use that for the good of us, those who love you. Amen.